0: This is God's word. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Not. But, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Read that far in God's word. Are you a good citizen? Uh, Christ never meant for us following him to interfere with our obedience to the civil government. In fact, following Christ ought to make us more quiet, more loyal, and more faithful citizens. And the first step in that is to realize that the government over us has been put in place by God himself. And the second step is to take our Christian convictions into the public arena, such as in our voting and anyone who serves as a Christian in public office. But that brings us to our main point printed there in your bulletin. Christ calls us to obey both the government and God, and he gives us wisdom and grace to manage both allegiances. We'll see how the uh, delegation attempted to trap Jesus in verse 13. Our second point will be the hypocrisy of man exposed in verses 14 to 16. And thirdly, verse 17, the wisdom of God for our two allegiances. First, verse 13, we'll start our our passage with a study of this verb trap. Um, It's my first point, the attempt to trap. It's in our passage. If you look at it, verse 13 They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. This verb trap is a good translation. The the verb here has a sense of taking advantage of someone in an unguarded moment. We could say that they set a trap in order to catch him, which is exactly the scenario. The Pharisees had teamed up with Herodians, we're told, in verse 13, in order to get Jesus to begin speaking about a complex topic with the hidden goal of trying to get Jesus to make some overstatement, and then they could trap him. Why would they do that? Verse 12, if you go back to our previous passage, verse 12 tells us why they were seeking to arrest him. And that's filled out a little further back in chapter 11, verse 18, where we read, They were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. If you go all the way back to chapter 3, verse 6, you'll see that these Herodians and the Pharisees had teamed up for a long time already. Since they wanted to arrest Jesus and they wanted to destroy Jesus, but the crowd liked Jesus, they needed some way to arrest Jesus that would be plausible to the crowd. Before we move on, Uh, Notice something significant and important in the very first words of our passage, verse 13, the first three words. It might not seem important, but they really are. And they sent. What does that mean? Well, these Pharisees and Herodians we've begun to study did not initiate this effort. Well, then who did? This is significant. It was those same scribes, those same chief priests, and those same elders in the temple who had been approaching Jesus since chapter 11, verse 27. They were the ones who sent the Pharisees and Herodians, this group, in order to trap Jesus. So what that tells us is their response to this beautiful warning parable of verses 1 through 12 that we studied last time that Jesus told their response to the warning was not to repent. Instead, and hauntingly, their response was to send a, short, or a small delegation to try to trap Jesus in order to destroy him. That's a pretty incredible response to the parable that we studied last time. I wanted you to notice that these men were sent by the chief priests, scribes, and elders of the temple. It was the official delegation. So that's the attempt to trap those who sent it and those who came. We're moving on to our second point, verses 14 to 16, the hypocrisy of man. Verse 14, the first place that the delegation's hostility showed itself was with them speaking compliments to Jesus, that there were not really compliments at all. It's actually flattery. They begin with this word teacher, and then they move on to say to Jesus, we know that you are true. I'll come back to that word true. And do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. It's ironic that here they stand telling Jesus that Jesus is sincere, which is showing themselves to be not sincere. It's ironic what's happening in the very same words that they're using. They're flattering Jesus by giving Jesus excessive praise, just one thing after another stacked up here, so that Jesus would be more inclined to answer their trick question, which is yet to come, more inclined than he might otherwise be because they're, as we call it, buttering him up. In verse 15, if you'll jump forward for a minute, minute, um, relieves us to know that Jesus knew all about their hostility, he knew all about their flattery, he knew all about their chicanery or trickery, as we read in verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, and so on. So he knew He knew about their hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy means to deliver a speech or to deliver a line. Think of an actor in a play or an actor in a movie. It's an actor who delivers a line, the line that the character would say. It's hypocrisy to present one thing when you yourself are actually another. To speak the right words but not to mean those words. Hypocrisy is basically pretending to be someone you're not. And Jesus saw right through them. How did Jesus know that they were hypocritical? That's one main thing if you noticed it in verse 14. You truly teach the way of God. If they believed that Jesus truly taught the way of God, what would they do? (laughs) They would repent and follow the parable he just taught and follow him. But they weren't following him. They were challenging him repeatedly. So it's clearly hypocritical speech. And Jesus knew that. We see that as Mark presents it to us. If um, they didn't follow Jesus and, on the contrary, were hostile towards him and saying that he teaches the true way of God, it's hypocrisy. So when they say Jesus is true, I said I would come back to this. When they said Jesus is true in verse 14, what they are referring to is that he's fair-minded. He's true to a larger principle. He's true in the way that he evaluates things. So he's fair-minded. It's the opposite of the word True here is not so much the word falsehood. It's not true versus false here. Instead, it's true versus biased. Um, Fair versus unfair. Uh, True versus biased. It's, in other words, the opposite of partiality. And then let's look at their actual trick question. The whole idea was they presented the next question to him. Let's study the question now in verse 14. The question is framed in terms of what was permitted what was allowed? Under God's law, their question is, was it allowed for them to skip paying taxes to the government for religious reasons? We have this money, we'd rather not give it to the government because it's doing questionable things, so can we, as God followers, you're the big teacher, so you tell us, can we, instead of giving this money to the questionable government, give it to God and the things of God and the the cause of God. That's their trick question. And Jesus saw the trick in it. You see the trick in it? They're subtly suggesting something tucked within the question itself. They're suggesting that a conflict exists between God's law and human law. That a conflict inherently exists between obeying God and obeying the government, namely paying taxes. That you could do one or the other But you can't do both. There's a conflict that exists they are proposing. That's the trick behind the question. And the answer of Jesus is brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. To ask for a denarius was the genius because it exposed the idea of being a fanatic for God, giving me a false dilemma. Should I give my money to God or give my money to Caesar is a false dilemma dilemma. He exposes that by asking for the denarius coin. So instead of setting loyalty to God against loyalty to Caesar, the straightforward meaning of the words of Jesus are that both may be maintained at the same moment. A person can be both loyal to God and loyal to Caesar at the same time, which is how he said it here in verse 16. They brought one, one of those coins, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And then he gives the incredible answer that we'll study in our third point, our last verse and last point, verse 17. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, and they marveled at him. So it's the wisdom of God for us in these two allegiances, both of which stay upon us. So the logic of the statement of Jesus is shown especially in the verb. The verb in verse 17 that Jesus used is render. Another way to translate that is to give back. To give back. So their trick question included their verb. If you look back to verse 14, it's translated just fine here as pay. Pay taxes. But the more plain way to look at that verb is the word give. So they say give. Jesus says pay back, give back. Give or give back is the contrast. Do you see what the subtle difference is that's huge? It's subtle because it's either give or give back, but it shifts the ownership completely. I either own money, and I give it to the government, or I don't own money, I'm merely giving it back. Who owns those dollars? That's what's at stake. It was wrongly assumed in their question that we own our own money. That's why they could say, should we give it to Caesar or not? But the more accurate answer of Jesus is about giving back to Caesar. It means to give back to the receiver something that already belongs to the receiver. If I borrow my neighbor's bicycle and then I say to my family, I'm going to go give this bike to the neighbor, that shouldn't be an objection because it already belongs to the neighbor. The issue is who owns it? Do you see the subtle shift of truth about ownership that is brilliant? Who owns your money and mine? Jesus changed the debate. It was not about not giving what is mine, but rather it's about giving back what belongs to someone else, and then there's two categories of that. Jesus changed the debate in a deep, healthy, permanent, and helpful way. If we see our money as ours, then we need to decide whether to give it to missions or give it to taxes. And we're always going to pick missions, aren't we? (laughs) Missions or taxes, if I have to decide, I'm going to give every dollar to missions, not taxes. But if we're on fire for God, we would like to give our money to God and to his missionaries, right? Not to the government, especially when we feel the government is doing questionable things with our tax dollars. You see how this is a complex and long-standing human debate. But... If we see our money more accurately as truly God's money because we owe God and our tax dollars more accurately as the government's money because we owe taxes, then we actually don't have a choice in the matter. There's no debate here at all. We're simply returning the money to the entities to whom the money belongs. The money belongs to the government, so I'm giving it to them. The money belongs to God, so I'm giving it to God. And the picture of Caesar on the coin and how Jesus emphasized that symbolizes the dependence of the subject people on the benefits of the entire Roman Empire as symbolized by the face of Caesar. And to use that coin to pay the tax was to recognize that they were indebted to the Roman government and its chief representative for the basic items needed to live their lives. For example, their safety was because the Roman Empire paid soldiers to keep every city safe and because the Roman Empire kept the whole territory safe. Their travel, as a second example, was because Rome built roads that were well built that they could travel upon. All of these benefits, buying and selling and trading and having things from all around the world were benefits that they gained from living there under the auspices of the Roman Empire. There was a portion of what they had with the face of Caesar on it that belonged to Caesar because they got something for it. You get electricity, you pay your electric bill. You, you get goods from the Roman Empire and services, you pay for the goods and services. It's a bill. It's owed. Caesar's things are the obligation of each citizen to pay the tax that was asked of him. The teaching of Jesus here is so brilliant. It reminds me of a tiny acorn that will grow into the huge oak tree of the whole teaching about civic responsibility for Christians. It's built on this one beautiful core statement. As the coin bears Caesar's image, so every person bears the image of God. You and I are made in the image of God. And so if God has printed his image upon us, there's a beautiful picture of us owing God our very selves. He showed that there's no conflict that exists between what God requires us to do for God and what God requires us to do for our government. Allegiance to Christ that is holy, pure, and like a roaring fire is completely and fully compatible with turning over your tax payment, knowing that a portion of it will be used to fund unholy, impure, and deadening agendas. It's fully consistent for the Christian to pay those taxes, even knowing that. This is profound. This solves a very complex matter that's been wrestled around with Christians down through the ages. It's answered by scripture. It points us also to Christ our Savior, Christ who came in order to go to the cross for us. Yes, we render, as he says, to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, but we render to God the things that belong to God. But we'll never be saved by rendering to God the things that belong to God because we mess it all up. We can't be saved in this manner. We're not saved by what we render to God. We're saved only by what God renders to us. God renders to us the righteousness of Christ. Listen to it summarized so succinctly by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of Of God, It's what God renders to us, the righteousness of Christ. And so that's the great exchange. It's what theologians call the great exchange. Christ gets our punishment because it's transferred to him and he dies with our sins. We get Christ's righteousness because it's transferred to us by faith that Christ took our stony hearts of rebellion and took them out, replaced them with soft hearts of obedience and love and trust for him and therefore obedience to the government. Because Jesus died and rose again to give us these new hearts, we now have new hearts that genuinely desire to render to God the things that are God's and genuinely desire to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's because God said so in his wisdom. That brings me to my first of two conclusions. It's a concluding application. Number one, pay to God what is due by not having a bad attitude about paying taxes. (laughs) That's literally my first application. We've got to think this through. If what we have discovered in this study is true, we probably struggle at times with a bad attitude about paying taxes. Other aspects of government obedience, yes, but this one narrow example, paying taxes. Pay to God what is due by not having a bad attitude about paying taxes. Yeah, pay your taxes. That's actually the easy part. Write the check, electronically transfer. But the hard part is to have our attitude right. Paul talks about this and Peter talks about this. So Paul in Romans 13:1 to 7. It's a classic passage of God's explanation. God commands us to obey human government. Why? Because God is the one who set up the human government over us. That's the argument Paul's making in Romans 13. So if we rebel against the human government, we're rebelling against God himself. So if you won't pay your taxes, you're sinning against God. How about if you pay your taxes with a bad attitude? That too would be sinning against God. So listen as Paul writes Romans 13:6, "Because of this you also pay taxes for the authorities are representatives of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed." Romans 13 Clearly, the teaching of Jesus in Mark 12 is the basis for the more developed teaching from God the Holy Spirit through the pen of the Apostle Paul and what I just read. That's worthy of further study in Romans 13. But I want to add the teaching of the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter 2, 13-17. to 17. Again, we can read there how it's possible to be true to God and government at the same time. Peter says it very broadly about all the government, not just the taxing agency, but I'll read a couple excerpts from 1 Peter 2. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then jump to verse 15. For this is the will of God. And verse 17, honor everyone. Fear God. And listen to this. Honor the emperor. I would submit to you that honor the emperor talks to us about our attitude, not just about our pays, our, our checks and whether we've paid it. It's not just paying your tax bill. It's honoring your government, honoring the specific government leaders and the specific government employees. I want to tell you a quick story. It's entertaining, so I hope it's not too distracting because of how entertaining it is, but it's right on point. Stephen Pajorowski in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, was a resident who paid his 2013 property taxes on the day the government was due to seize his home because he hadn't paid them yet. That's how long he was battling against the government. But since Piotrowski described his property taxes as, quote, unethical, unchristian like and, quote, a form of financial slavery, he decided to make this whole not paying my property taxes a giant statement. So he spoke to the newspaper called the Philadelphia Inquirer. He said this, quote, since I'm being forced to pay for something against my own will, I'm paying... In pennies. He had planned to pay the entire bill with 83,160 pennies. Petrowski was only able to get 50,000 pennies from 15 different banks that he went to the three days prior to the deadline. And on the very last day, he was forced to throw in some extra change and other bills so that it added up to the proper number in a wheelbarrow that he bought special for the occasion. Premeditated, right? And he headed for the Continental Bank in West Nortown Township where walk-in payments are accepted. We could say that the bank employees were underwhelmed and yet were forced to accept the mounds of change. And Perowski's home successfully escaped sheriff's sale. Fine. Legally, owner of the home legally paid the taxes. I would say sinful attitude. That's what I'm cautioning you about. I hope the story wasn't too distracting. But to summarize, Paul, Peter, and of course our Lord Jesus in our passage, the normal situation that they're teaching about is that our loyalties are compatible both vertically and horizontally. How could God ask us to do it but then ask us to do it with a bad attitude? Yes, there come times where sinning governments Dilemmas come up, of course, of course. Those are other things to discuss. Difficulties multiply at times. I understand that. What I'm saying is the teaching of Jesus, Paul, and Peter lines up in just these passages we've touched on that for the most part, for most situations, there does not exist a conflict between believers obeying God and obeying Caesar. My first application. The second and last application Pay God what is due by being more loyal to God than everyone else put together. Be more loyal to God than to everyone else put together. What this means is to not have partiality. Jesus is teaching here about the wrong of partiality by his good example of being true. Remember, true meant fair-minded. We are to never become overly loyal to one group, or one person. On the flip side, never to be against one group or one person to assume someone is guilty and condemn him or her without proper proof. We can't afford to get it wrong in either direction. It has to be correct. Think of Leviticus 19:15. You shall not do I'm sorry. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor? Leviticus 19.15. We have to get it right. God expects us to be more and more like Jesus himself, showing no partiality, showing no favoritism. This means we have no person who, in our book, can be above the law or outside the rules. We know that partiality is a sin, that a characteristic of God is that he has no partiality. So we never develop a favorite person person who we would permit to get away with anything or never be confronted or brought to account. Nor, on the other hand, do we find any one person who becomes the scapegoat, who takes all the blame for all the problems. God won't allow bias in either direction. Galatians 2.6, Acts 10.34, and Romans 2.11 all say this sentence. God shows no partiality. And that's illustrated in one amazing story in the Bible, Acts 5. Ananias, this man, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the money. He could have done that, but he made it look like he was giving all the money from the property. So he came and gave that. And his wife Sapphira knew about this. It turns out she had a person whom she would allow to get away with anything. That person was her spouse. How did she, how did God deal with that? Well, not with partiality. You know the story. First, Ananias comes in to present the money to the apostles, and God causes him to die right then and there. They carry him out. Three hours later, Sapphira, his wife, comes in. She also fell dead. What's the lesson? That God expects us to have no partiality, to not harbor sin. That our expect the expectation from God is that we we'll be more loyal to God than everyone else put together. We don't have a special spouse, friend, parent, sibling, child, grandparent, grandchild. What God expects is loyalty from us that is greater than our loyalty to everyone else put together. This loyalty is one of God's things. Remember how Jesus said, this coin has Caesar's face on it, give it to Caesar. But whatever God asks of us belongs to God. We owe it to God. Do we pay it? As proof, I'll just read this one passage from Jesus from Matthew chapter 10, starting with verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So my second application is simply this. Pay God what is due by being more loyal to God than everyone else put together let